0: You guys, I think, have talked a few times about the AOC uh, family. I like that idea, that family doesn't have to be strictly your mom and dad. It can be wider.
1: Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. I'm here with producer Jason DeFilippo. On this episode, we'll be talking with my friend, A.J. Jacobs. This guy is super interesting. Jason, you've you read more than just this book from A.J.?
2: Oh, yeah, I think I've read all of his books. He's, he's one of my favorite writers. His books are just so light and fun, and they do make you think.
1: Yeah, they make you think. He does these extreme personal experiments. One was a year of living biblically, so he followed the Bible, literally. We're going to ask him about that. This one, he researches. DNA, genetics, family, and he sort of takes it to his usual A.J. Jacobs extremes. The book is called It's All Relative. Adventures up and down the world's family tree, and it's a heartfelt quest that's quite funny, and he's a funny writer. The way he tells stories is funny, so we're gonna explore a little bit of the family of humankind here, and today we'll discover how we're all related, just really related, and why this matters in terms of everything from the structure of society to how we treat one another on a daily basis, and we'll also explore some concrete strategies on how to cultivate deeper big picture thinking, better brainstorming, and construct some of AJ's famous extreme personal experiments, if we decide to do that as well. And this is a fun conversation with a brilliant guy, so enjoy. When people look at reality TV shows and things like that, and I look at your record here, the year of living biblically uh, kinda, on its face, at first glance, somebody might say, look at this attention-seeking punk here. (laughs) Lived like the Bible for a year. Tell us about what that was. I know we talked about it years ago, but I'm not convinced everybody who's listening to this just listened to our episode from five years ago right beforehand.
0: It started, this was a few years ago, and I grew up with no religion at all. As I say in the book, I'm Jewish, but I'm Jewish in the same way the Olive Garden is Italian. You too, right? I mean, even less so.
1: I didn't even know about it until I was 13. Really? Here's how I found out that I was of Jewish ancestry. I'd come home one day from school and I said something like, did you hear about this guy named Hitler? And my mom's like, Uh, yeah, I think I read something about that. And I said something like, yeah, it's so terrible, all the things and it wouldn't happen to us because we're not Jewish. And she said, eh, that's funny because, you know, you look a little bit Jewish. And I said, uh-uh. And she showed me pictures of all these people who we were related to. And I said, yeah, but these people aren't Jewish. She said, yeah, they are. And I said, well, wait a second if grandma's Jewish and her grandma and her mom was Jewish and then yet side is the Jewish and then that would, I don't understand. She said, yeah, you're like one sixteenth, you know, on your mom's side and my mom's side. Since it's maternal, technically, you know, I fall into it. So when Hasidic people find out about that, they just go crazy. But for me, I had Christmas growing up because my parents thought it was easier. My mom was non-practicing and my grandma grew up in a Polish neighborhood in Detroit where you didn't say happy Hanukkah to your neighbors because they would egg your house or something like that. And everybody was Catholic, so they just went, screw it, and they just kind of didn't do anything. So I didn't know about it. And then in college, I kind of went to a couple of those, like, Jewish dinners and stuff, and I was like, okay, I'm done with this. I'm good. On, I'm all set now. we <laughs> are all <Thanks>. good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We're done exploring this. So you didn't do a year of looking like Moses, because that's the other way to go, if you don't know anything about it. Right. Yeah, I knew nothing about it. So I thought one way to learn about the Bible might be to actually live it and dive in and sort of follow in the footsteps of our forefathers. I got a board of spiritual advisors. I had rabbis and ministers and scholars. And then I wrote down every single rule in the Bible. And there are hundreds. And I wanted to follow the famous ones like the Ten Commandments and love your neighbor, but also the weird forgotten rules like, Don't shave the corners of your beard. I didn't know where the corners were, so I just let the whole thing grow. And I had this topiary on my chin, and I spent a lot of time at airport security. That's what I looked like. The Bible says to stone adulterers, so I I went ahead and did that. I used pebbles because I didn't want to spend my life in jail. That was the premise. And it was partly to explore what am I missing by not having any of these rituals, It was partly sort of a way to take on fundamentalism because there are all these millions of people who say, oh, we live the Bible literally. And I was like, really? You live the Bible literally? But what about avoiding clothes made of mixed fibers? Do you do that? I mean, do you have a biblical slave? These are all things that they did in the Bible. So I wanted to show that fundamentalists are actually very selective. They're cherry picking.
1: That's interesting because most people who just want to point out that fundamentalists are being selective, just say, hey, you're being pretty selective. Look at all these things you didn't follow. And they write an article about it for Medium, and that's the end. They don't spend a year (laughs) growing out the edges of their beard. I remember one story, you were on a park bench, and someone said they were an adulterer just to see what you would do, and you threw a pebble at him and then, like, gunned it away from him because he got angry.
0: That's exactly right. You remember correctly. I don't often mention this, but he was, like, 82 years old, so I probably didn't need to gun it quite as fast. I thought this was a very simple way to show that fundamentalism is flawed. I mean, you can write an article, but this is a visual. Like, you can see the craziness. You can see how crazy I look. What did your wife and family think about this? Because I assume there were lots
1: of things that were massively, massively inconvenient for them.
0: Well, I think it depends. There were pros and cons. My wife actually liked some parts of it because I was trying to be better. You know, the Bible says don't lie, don't covet don't gossip. And I live in New York City, and I'm a journalist. So that was like most of my day. So I think I became a little more compassionate. So I really was working on this moral makeover aspect. But at the same time, you had all of these ancient tribal crazy rules, like the Bible says you cannot touch women during their time of month when they're menstruating. But even more, Leviticus says that you cannot sit on a seat where a menstruating woman has sat because that seat becomes impure. And my wife found that offensive. So she sat in every seat in our apartment and I had to stand for most of the year. So in that way, <laughs> <laughs> and later I did a book on health and I learned how unhealthy it is to sit. So she was actually doing me a favor. That's the way I reframe it. I love that she decided to
1: teach somebody who wrote part of the Bible you know, thousands of years ago, a lesson by making your life really hard during the hardest year of your (laughs) life.
0: You know, I believe there are aspects of religion that I took away and made my life better. And I'm happy to talk about those. But I also believe that the Bible was written by some people and some of them obviously had serious issues. So there's one rule in the Bible that I always think about, which is that if two men are in a fight, and the wife of one of those men grabs the testicles of the other man, then her hand shall be cut off. Like, that's literally in the Bible. And I'm like, why would anyone write that? My theory is, it's got to be that this guy was in a fight, and the opponent's wife grabbed him by the balls, and he's like, this is never going to happen again. God is going to come down and say, You do not grab another guy's balls.
1: Yeah, it's like, let the guys handle it. Don't be bringing your family into it because he's not allowed to strike her and she's literally got you by the balls. This is totally unfair. This is not how you're supposed to fight, apparently. And so unless you work for Fox News, you cannot break that rule. (laughs) (laughs) That is right. And it's
0: right there in the Bible.
1: What did you take away from that experiment that improved your life that still sticks with you? I'm curious because of course, Walking around with a crazy beard and probably some sandals that you had to weave yourself or something out of children's hair was really inconvenient. But what was good that you took away from this? The Not lying seems very tough. I talked about that with Sam Harris here on the show, not lying anymore. It's extremely hard because white lies count and untruths and omissions. All of that stuff counts.
0: Yeah, there was a ton of stuff that made my life better and that I still try to practice. I'll just give you a couple examples. One is the idea of gratitude, because the Bible has a few lines where it says you have to be thankful for everything. So I took that literally. So I would press an elevator button and I'd be thankful the elevator came. I'd get in the elevator. I'd be thankful it didn't crash and i break my collarbone. So it was a weird way to live because you were doing this hundreds of times a day. But it was also wonderful because you do realize there are hundreds, thousands of things that go right every day that we totally take for granted. And we, as humans, focus on the three or four that go wrong. So it's this radical shift in perspective that I still try to keep. Even something like whenever I'm online at the drugstore and it's a short line, I really try to make a mental note. So next time I'm in the long line, just remember that it evens out. I'm still atheist agnostic, but you can still enjoy and Find meaning and beauty in the rituals of religion, even if so. I do like getting together with my family and, you know, having Passover, eating this salty and sometimes gross food. And also the idea of community. That's a big one in the Bible because in biblical times, this idea of the individual was very minor. It was really all about the community, all about your neighbors and your tribe. And I do think we swung a little too much towards this idea of the individual and all of our rights. We've got all these rights, but we forget about the responsibility to the community. So I think we need more of a balance in that.
1: What inspired the newest book, It's All Relative? Why go out and prove that all humanity is one family and kind of do this large family reunion? Tell us what you grabbed from this and why you even started this journey in the first place.
0: Yeah, this was a weird one because I did not expect to pursue this topic, but it turned out to be one of the most fascinating in my life. And it started because this is about three years ago, I got an email from this guy and he said, you don't know me, but I am your eighth cousin. So I was immediately suspicious. I figure, all right, he's going to ask me to wire $10,000 to Nigeria. But actually he was legitimate and he's one of these people who is helping to build the biggest family tree in history with literally millions of people in dozens of countries, hundreds of ethnicities, all connected on a single tree, that just blew me away. Because as I said, I always thought genealogy is a little stodgy, maybe not so sexy. But now with all these technology advances, it is so relevant and it affects everything from politics to race relations and tribalism, which I think is perhaps the biggest problem humans face right now. So I fell in love with the idea and I decided this has to be my next book. You found out you were related
1: to your wife. That's disturbing. <laughs> did. It didn't tell us how this happened because I can't imagine that news went over really well.
0: Well, that's right. I took all of the DNA tests. I took like seven of them, but one of them, 23 and Me, which we can talk about later, they send you a list of people who share enough DNA that they are your cousins. So I get the list and I'm looking down. I don't recognize, don't recognize. Oh, wait, there's a name I recognize. Julie Jacobs, my wife. I went in to show my wife, ironically, and I couldn't have scripted this. She was watching the Game of Thrones. And I was like, (laughs) hey, look at this. We're, We're cousins. I thought it would spice up our marriage like the forbidden fruit. But no, she was grossed out. Yeah. But it actually, I have a whole chapter in the book about the history and ethics of cousin marriage, which is crazy. If you do buy this idea that we're all related, you're married to your cousin. You're a cousin stupper.
1: Luckily, my wife is of Chinese origin, so it's a very distant cousin. But still, yeah, if we're all related, then I guess we're all in that boat. Although in It's All Relative, in your book, you did have an interaction with a guy who runs a website that is for cousins that are in love. And we're talking like first cousins, right? Yeah.
0: First and second cousins. I had two reactions. I mean, the first is this is so gross, but that's a gut reaction. A lot of things I find gross, but shouldn't be illegal. So the more I thought about it and the more I talked to the head of the first cousin marriage, the more I kind of saw his point of view. I mean, I'm not in favor of cousin mayor I don't want everyone to marry their cousin. But if you do happen to fall in love with your first cousin, I do think you should be allowed to marry. And they actually have their own lingo, like cousins. They become husband and wife. I can see why they need
1: a website to kind of keep that under wraps. That's an unusual... If you can count publishing globally to the internet under wraps. You probably looked into this. It's got to be anonymous or something like that, right? I mean, this is...
0: Right. But I would say I always love to think about it. You know, we look back 200 years and we're like, oh, my God, they had slaves, what horrible people, and then just a list of all of the horrible things they did. So in 200 years, what are going to be our behaviors that people are going to say, man, those guys, what assholes? And it won't be high on the list, but I do think this revulsion to first cousins marrying, they'll be like, ah, big deal. Why would they care? Why did they find that so disgusting?
2: You're listening to The Art of Charm with Jordan Harbinger and today's guest, A.J. Jacobs. So stick around and we'll get right back to the show after
3: these important messages. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you
4: do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi.
2: Thank you for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. To learn more about our sponsors, visit theartofcharm.com advertisers. But for now, let's get back to Jordan and A.J. Jacobs.
1: Some of the trends that you discovered in the big human family were even more interesting than some kissing cousins. Genealogy is like this far more exciting field than anyone ever thought. There's people who research, they only look for the black sheep. And I, I'm going to need an intro to this because I've got some black sheep in the not-so-distant past in my family, my I don't even know how it was related to me directly, but on my mom's side, some guy, he was a mob enforcer, basically. The only photo we have of him is him beating someone up in the street, and it was in a newspaper, and it's him and a couple other guys in trench coats, like, you know, destroying some guy who's on the ground, and it was because, since he was also Jewish, he couldn't get a job, I think it, it was Ford or General Motors, they just wouldn't hire Jews. So he went and he worked for the union breakers who were basically just thugs contracted out from the company to the mafia. So in the end, he did get a job at Ford. He just wasn't on the assembly line. He got a job beating (laughs) up people on the assembly line who are trying to unionize.
0: And he's also, it sounds like he's an entrepreneur.
1: There you go. There's where it comes from.
0: Yeah, he was a self-starter. There are people, this one guy who goes to these conventions and he literally puts on black and white striped prison suits to advertise that he'll find the black sheep in your family. I didn't have any mob enforcers. I have to say I'm jealous. I had one guy who stole microscopes. It's a geeky crime, but I'm a fan of science. This guy got interested because his grandfather was in Sing Sing prison for polygamy. I mean, one thing that I think is interesting is I think it's good to have people confront the black sheep in their family and realize that we all have good and bad in our family. It sort of democratizes things and makes us realize we are not beholden to our ancestors. We can rise above them. And that's why that whole, I don't know if you remember this mini scandal where Ben Affleck was on one of those ancestry shows. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. It turned out one of his ancestors was a slave owner and he lobbied the show successfully to get it censored from the show. Then the Sony hack happened, and it came out that he had censored this, and he got in a lot of trouble, which I think he deserved to get in trouble, because why censor it? The fact that he's not racist, I think that's a great educational moment. I think you can teach people, listen, we all have horrible ancestors, but we don't have to follow in their footsteps. So that really drove me crazy.
1: Yeah, I understand a little bit why, but I also think you're right. It is inappropriate, because it's kind of like you're trying to imply that people in your past have never done anything wrong, which is ridiculous. This is also one of the reasons why when people, kooky people in my opinion, claim things like, you know, I have an injury from a past life or I'm having memories from a past life. It's never, yeah, you know, I was just some run of the mill peon. I was a (laughs) farmer and then I got killed in the war. I didn't last five minutes. I died at age 16. It's never that. It's like, I was a knight of King Arthur's Round Table. You're never a shit shoveler in the middle of nowhere. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is such a good point. People are so selective in their say, ans- Oh, I'm a descendant of King Charles. But yeah, but you're also a descendant of, as you say, shit shovelers and stevedores and embezzlers own up to it. And actually, this, I think, does have profound implications because there's a great study that showed that kids who are taught about their ancestors are better adjusted. This was an Emory University study. But it wasn't just that they knew the dates of their grandparents' birth, because, you know, who cares? It's the stories, and not just any stories, the fact that every family has had its ups and downs. Every family struggles and fails, but perseveres and has grit and stick to So I love to tell my kids about all the failures in our family's past and all my failures. I'm like, huge about telling them all the terrible ideas I've had over the years and how much I got rejected to give them the idea that, you know, it's okay to fail. I may go overboard. I think sometimes they think, God, dad is such a loser. Like all he does is have these failures. So I've got to adjust a little and tell them I do have occasional successes. But I think that is important to talk about the farmers and stevedores as well as the kings and popes.
1: But I would imagine at some point DNA tests will be so ubiquitous and we'll be able to trace lineage so well that we're going to find some crazy stuff because all those popes, all those priests and a lot of these high power people and Egyptian pharaohs, all these people's bodies and DNA is well preserved underneath monasteries, churches, in pyramids,
0: cemeteries. There's a ton of DNA from people. That brings up so many issues. I mean, I think as more and more people get their DNA and now there's like five million who've done it. There's going to be some great parts to society, and also some really potentially troublesome parts. I mean, first of all, the world is going to be like one huge Maury Povich show because there's two percent of all offspring are from a father who is different than the one they thought. Two percent, you know, two percent of seven billion people—that's a shitload of people who have a different father. And I have a chapter in my book on one of the crazier stories where this guy, he had nine siblings. They all got tested as adults and found out they had nine different dads. Oh, man. So it was like a reality show times 100. But it actually, I found it inspiring interviewing this guy because, first of all, the father treated all of the kids as if they were his own, even though he knew the whole time that none of them were. I thought that was nice, this idea that family doesn't just have to be DNA. You guys, I think, have talked a few times about the AOC uh, family. And I like that idea that family doesn't have to be strictly your mom and dad. It can be wider.
1: Yeah, it can be wider and should be wider. My mom comes from a, as you know, mob enforcer side comes from some less undesirable relatives. There's plenty of other black sheep that are less interesting. So she always says things like, friends of the family you get to choose. You know, it's a cute sort of saying, but also what she means is, oh my God, if I couldn't choose at least some part of my family, I'd go crazy because half of her family is actually crazy. You do have to really pay attention to the idea that tribalism is a, for better or for worse, it does affect us. And you mentioned this earlier in the show as well as in the book, Tell us why tribalism is something that you feel so strongly about.
0: Oh, yeah, I think it is possibly the biggest problem because it also affects every other problem, because if we're all in these little separate warring tribes, then we can never get together and solve the big problems, which are huge and need worldwide cooperation like climate change or um, these pandemic diseases. I do think a little bit about the AI robots taking over the world, as crazy as it sounds. It worked when we were Paleolithic, because you were in a small tribe, and yeah, you needed to protect it and keep your DNA intact, so your kids and close relatives. But nowadays, it's just spun out of control. And you look around, I mean, tribalism in politics, the red states versus blue states, and rural versus city, and just this increasing obsession with race and ethnicity and identity politics. I just think it is really literally tearing our society apart because we're all obsessed with our differences instead of focusing on the 99% of DNA that we share. This idea of one big family is one way to fight it. And actually, there is empirical evidence that it kind of works. There's a great study last year by Harvard that showed when they told Palestinians and Israelis how closely they were related, they treated each other with kindness and more uh, willingness to negotiate. So it's sort of this, what behavioral economists call the family bias, that you are biased naturally to treat your relatives with a little more generosity. So if we can take this bias and hijack it and apply it to everyone in the whole world, your big family, it might actually help. I've seen this on a personal level. Judge Judy, I always found her incredibly, just a real... Bitch, just obnoxious. Then I found she's my eighth cousin. And I'm like, you know what? That Judge Judy's not so bad. She's just doing her shtick, and underneath, I'm sure she's a sweetheart. I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. And it's kind of irrational, but it works. It really worked for me. You know, when someone cuts me off in the highway, I try to think that guy, we probably share a 10th great grandfather. And if we both have offspring, then they'll be related. So let me try to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that his kid is sick at home and he's not a total asshole. I, you know, I still get angry and occasionally flip people off, but I think I do it less.
1: Yeah, I think it would be something that would be hard to shake because there's plenty of people who treat their family poorly. So it probably also depends on what kind of person you are initially as well, of course.
0: And I do have a chapter on family feuds, including the Hatfields and McCoys, you know, the ultimate family feud. That was really interesting because I interviewed both of them. And a few years ago, they actually had like a reunion of both and they signed a peace treaty. And their argument is, well, if we can do it, anyone can do it. Wow. So you met the
1: actual Hatfields. And so they're real. I didn't even know that was real.
0: Oh, yeah. It started with a few different things. But one was the stolen pig, a stolen hog. And then also there was a Hatfield woman who married a McCoy man or the other way around. And yeah, a lot of murders Then they decided, you know, this is silly. Partly it's like we don't want to be known as the ultimate irrational hillbilly feud. Let's try to improve our lot. So they did. They signed this peace treaty and they had a big reunion. And instead of killing each other, they played softball. And it wasn't perfect because I think the Hatfields accused the McCoys of cheating and bringing in a ringer. And I think the Hatfields crushed them by like 15 to 1. So, you know,
2: not perfect. I wonder the wisdom of actually having competition at a reunion where you're
1: actually trying to make peace, you know? (laughs) It might not have
2: been the best idea. Yeah, might not
0: have been. Yeah,
1: right? Chili cook-off, softball game, wrestling match. uh, (laughs) And knife fight. (laughs) Yeah, clay pigeon. What could go wrong at a Hatfield-McCoy reunion with a little uh, clay pigeon shooting? (laughs) It's definitely something that surprised me to read that that was actually real. I just thought that was part of Huckleberry Finn or something like that. Very
0: much real. Yeah. And they have hundreds of descendants. I think some of them have gotten married. So there you go. I mean, because that's another thing I'm hoping this trend towards intermarriage, I think, is a good thing. And Jordan, you said your wife is of Asian descent.
1: Right. Yeah. She's Taiwanese, you know, and her family came over from China in the 50s or something. So if we're related, it's pretty damn distant.
0: There's this line in the movie Bullworth. You ever see that movie? No. No. It's an old movie, it was with Warren Beatty, and he plays a senator who's trying to fight racism, and and he kind of goes crazy. And his platform is, he says, he's interested in procreative racial deconstruction. And someone's like, what are you talking about? he says, everybody got to keep fucking each other till we're all the same color. (laughs) Kind of a joke, but I actually think it is one solution that I am hopeful about, because intermarriage has increased dramatically. And I think it'll continue to do so. Hopefully, yeah, everyone will be fucking each other till we're approximately the same color. And that might be better for us.
1: Who knows? It may actually be. It is funny how learning of our ancestry changes behavior. I was watching a documentary the other day on Netflix called Keep Quiet. Have you seen this? It's about this Hungarian right-wing politician who is, his whole platform is anti-Semitism. He gets elected to the Hungarian parliament And his whole platform is the Jews are the biggest problem in society. And, you know, he's shockingly and disappointingly successful in spreading his message. He founded this party with a couple of other people. He's the vice president of the party. And then somebody who doesn't like him, who's also a right wing crazy person, does a bunch of research on his family and says, you know, these people, they look Jewish and your grandma looks Jewish. And, And then he finds out this guy's grandma was deported. And they go, why was she deported from Hungary? And they look her up and she went to Auschwitz. She's Jewish on his mom's side. The whole family knew the whole time. Turns out he's Jewish.
0: Amazing. And it worked, right? He kind of changed his point of view. He got ejected from the
1: party and he became an Orthodox Jew.
0: That is a crazy story. I mean, I think that that is one of the potential benefits of these DNA studies. I mean, there's tons of interesting stories. I have one in the book about this meteorologist in Texas. He was adopted, but he found his biological mom and she was this evangelical Christian and he's gay. So like, how did she deal with that? She actually became more open-minded. Now it's interesting because you also have the opposite reaction. There are a lot of interesting articles about these guys on white supremacist websites who find out they're part Jewish or part African-American from DNA tests. They say, oh no, these 23 and Me is a multicultural conspiracy." Owned by a Jew, I don't believe it, so I am hopeful that the first will happen more often than the second that people will be like, "Oh, and have a little revelation. but uh, it's sort of up in the air how this will play out it's a, a lot is up to us how we interpret this data.
1: so what's their dumb theory? It's that since this is owned by a Jewish person and that it's a conspiracy to what convince everybody that we're all sort of related and we're all really one ethnicity that's sort of been divided by this hair. Of DNA, and they can't handle that because it screws with their identity.
0: Yeah, they are all about racial purity. Actually, I just read a statistic uh, 0.03% of the people who do the My Heritage DNA test are from a single ethnicity. So that's 99.97% are not. So yeah, they refuse to accept it. What I love is to think about the fact it's not just that we're a mix of ethnicities. We're a mix of species. Because as you probably know, these DNA tests show you what percentage Neanderthal you are. And Neanderthal was a different species that died out. It's like lions and tigers mating and having ligers or tigrons. That's what we are. We're mutts. We're a mix of species. We're not even one species. We're like humanderthals. So the fact that people would be obsessed with the purity of race I just find laughable in that we're not even a pure species. I have a story in the book about this one woman who, she was redheaded and white-skinned, so she always thought she was Irish. She took the DNA test. Turns out she is part Irish, but she's also part Latina. And more than that, she's part Native American Latina, Taino, the Native Americans of Puerto Rico. And she's like 6%. And she always hated her Irish side. So she's now decided she identifies as a Latina. And more than that, she identifies as Taino, Native American. Because I'm sure people with like 80% Native American are going to be like, what the hell? You have 6% and you're co-opting my ethnicity. So it's going to get messy. I'm a techno optimist. I still think overall, it's going to make the world better when we realize how much of a mix we are. Hey, you've made it this far, so don't touch
2: that skip button, and we'll be right back with more from A.J. Jacobs after these brief announcements. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. Your support keeps us on the air. So for a list of all the discounts from our amazing sponsors, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now, here's the conclusion of our interview with A.J. Jacobs.
1: Well, I got into my 23andMe earlier to see if we were related. Did you guys do this, Jason? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I don't have any identical strands of DNA with you, AJ.
0: I saw that and it broke my heart. I know. I was like, nothing? And I don't believe it, actually. If you are part Jewish, you're definitely quite closely related. It depends what scientists you ask, but one MIT study showed it was about 70th cousin. So that's not that far off. So you and I are blood cousins. I did notice that you and I have the exact same percentage of Neanderthal DNA. Oh, no. And Jason, I'm sorry, no offense, but you are much lower on the Neanderthal scale. (laughs) No offense. I don't know if I should take offense to that or not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know if it makes you more manly, less manly. I have a section on the Neanderthals because they get a bad rap, but they weren't so bad. The scientists say that they could talk and that their voices Sounded like Julia Child, the chef, which <laughs> like raspy and high pitched, so it makes them less intimidating to me. You know, it's like ah,
1: oh. the Ministry of Silly Voices kind of voice, <laughs> exactly. That's right. Oh my gosh, I can only imagine. I guess we'll never really have to know that our distant relatives are like that. It does not surprise me that I have a healthy Neanderthal percentage. I also found when I looked at my ethnicities, I'm four percent Yakut, and I had to look that up. Yeah, what is that? That is a Turkic people that lives somewhere in Central Asia. So if I am distantly related to my wife, it's almost certainly through the Yakut side of people that had come out of Africa, up through Europe, went east instead of west or whatever, and then became, I don't even know if they're nomadic or what. They look like the people that you see who have like falcon hunting and things like that. They have a lot of beads and a lot of colorful stuff like that. And I guess it's just like a relatively small people. Are you going
0: to identify as Yakut? Go and like adopt the Yakut rituals. Maybe you should.
1: What's really strange is where did that come from? And my mom said that a lot of our older relatives have some Asian-y features that everybody uses to be mystified about. My mom theorizes slash jokes around that some Genghis Khan type just kind of raided the whole thing. And, you know, we've got some of that going on. So you did marry your cousin. That's exciting. Who knows? Unavoidable, really. Unavoidable. So what about identical DNA between you and Jason? I mean, we have the Neanderthal thing, but you and I were seemingly unrelated, which again, I don't believe. If both have Ashkenazi Jewish heritage, even in the family oral history that goes back a couple of generations at most, then that cannot be accurate.
0: I mean, the Ashkenazi Jews are what they call politely an endogamous population, which means inbreeders. There was serious inbreeding. So the average Ashkenazi Jew The estimates vary, but probably around seventh or eighth cousins. So we definitely are cousins. And by the way, you might have heard about the Icelandic are also one of the most endogamous societies. They marry each other all the time to the extent which they came out a couple of years ago with an iPhone app. The logo is bump phones before you bump in bed because (laughs) it will tell you how closely you are cousins so that you don't, like, inadvertently marry your second cousin. Oh, man. So if you match up on Tinder
1: and it's like, hey, we need that little plug-in on Tinder that says, hey, you're too closely related, (laughs) you probably shouldn't meet up, but you you can be friends.
0: Exactly. Well, this was interesting. One of my advisors is a brilliant geneticist, and he says that from a purely evolutionary point of view, the ideal mate for you is a fourth cousin because you don't want too close a cousin because then the immune system is too close and you might share weaknesses. But too far away and your kids become a little less viable, like lions and tigers, their kids are not as viable. So he says the ultimate from an evolutionary point of view is fourth cousin. So I've been talking to him like, we should start a dating app where you can find the fourth cousins in your area. And like, You are a perfect match for me. There's probably something to be said for that. I don't know who would want to
1: fund that and put their name on it, but (laughs) it's possible. Jason and I turned out to not have any identical DNA. Again, you know, I'm just I don't know. Well, here's the deal. I did
2: this and I did it with my dad. We came back very dissimilar, too. He was 44 percent Italian and I came back at like six percent. We're like, hmm okay, let's make a phone call here and figure out who the milkman was back then. (laughs) But then as soon as I linked the accounts and said, no, this is actually my dad, I got bumped up to 17.5% Italian. But it seems like it's very anecdotal how these relationships are being handled at 23andMe because you have to like manually tell them that you are related
0: and that the genetics aren't really that precise yet. And it's not a science yet. I mean, not a perfect science. It is getting better because the more people who join... The better the database is and the more accurate. But for instance, I did another DNA test a few years ago and it showed up that I was mostly Jewish, but 14% Scandinavian. And I was psyched. I was like, all right, get out the cross country skis. Let's have some herring. And then the results kept getting adjusted downwards. And now I'm like below 1% Scandinavian on there. It's like all my Swedish ancestors were just tragically killed. But it's because. Of their database, they had too many Scandinavians in their database, and it was throwing things off. So, yeah, I would take all of these results with a little bit of a grain of salt. But they're also not completely hokum. They're not just astrology. There is a good amount of science to it. And the big trends, like if they say you're from Northern Europe, you can be relatively sure that's accurate. When they try to get down to like you're from Scotland versus Ireland, they don't have that nailed down yet.
1: Yeah, that might be splitting hairs at that point. I guess once they can really nail down what everything is, they can trace your exact relatives all the way up the chain somehow, that'll be interesting. How do you think about getting into these types of extreme experiments, breaking the world record for a family tree, living biblically for a year? Were you always a big thinker? Were you always thinking about these grandiose experiments?
0: I mean, I love to brainstorm. Some people get ideas in the shower. I actually, don't you have like a shower idea? Icon somewhere on. I like to post the shower thoughts. Yeah. Of myself and others for sure. Right. That's funny because I have some of those, but more often than not, any ideas I come up with that are halfway decent, I actually have to carve out 15 minutes of my day, turn off all computers, all cell phones, surround myself with some materials like magazines and books, and just devote myself to brainstorming. One of the techniques I use in brainstorming is pushing everything to the extreme. So like just taking everything to its logical extreme, because in, when you do that, I think it reveals some truths. In one sense, it's absurd, but at the same time, it clarifies and it produces wisdom. So, for instance, I remember like 10 years ago, I read The World is Flat by Tom Friedman, and it was all about the beginnings of outsourcing, how these big banks would outsource their boring tasks to India. So I was like, how can I take that idea to the extreme? What if I did it and outsourced my entire life? So what if I hired a team of people in Bangalore, India to do everything for me and answer my phone, answer my email, argue with my wife, read my kids' bedtime stories? So I was like, you know what? That could work. So I did it as an experiment and it turned into an article, which then got some lovely traction, including it was reprinted in uh, our mutual friend Tim Ferriss's book. That is one way I like to think. Just take things to the extreme because it's very clarifying. And one last caveat on those brainstorming sessions, I would say that 99% of the ideas I come up with, if not more, are terrible. But I do think creativity is a numbers game and that you really do have to come up with tons of ideas until one of them sort of sticks and you keep coming back to it and like, you know what, that could work. So that was a long-winded answer to why I take things to the extreme.
1: I like that, though. How do we cultivate that type of thinking if we're not used to that, if we're used to thinking too small, or if we maybe we've found that we do this or we've been accused of doing this, how do we cultivate that type of bigger picture thinking in ourselves?
0: That is a great question. Wayne, I do recommend this idea of cutting off all distractions and just brainstorming for 15 minutes I like to sort of be very um, strategic in my brainstorming. So it's not just flow of consciousness. I'll have various ways to come up with ideas, and one of them is taking it to the extreme. I was just talking about this recently, I forget where. But if you come up with just any old topic, like snowman, okay, I'll say I'm going to brainstorm for five minutes about snowman and try to approach it from every angle. So like, what if it was instead of a snowman, it's a snowwoman? Or what about if it's like a snow transgender person, like a non-binary snowman? What would that look like? And what about instead of the pipe, he's like vaping? So again, none of these ideas ever went anywhere, but I think that it trains the brain. It keeps the brain loose. And the cliche is that the brain is a muscle, but I think there's truth in that. So I use that, taking things to the extreme, sort of playing with every idea Looking at something very closely, so like close up. So think about the snowflakes. Just zoom back and think about a world filled with snow people. It's these meta strategies to brainstorming instead of just letting your brain wander, which can work. I'm not disparaging that. But for me, sort of being very disciplined, it's almost disciplined daydreaming, which I know is a paradox, but it really works for me. The book is really
1: fun. It's interesting. It's funny. It's actually a lot like this conversation, but with the added bonus that uh, Jason and I are not in it. <laughs> if you are so inclined, check out the book. It's called It's All Relative, and it really is a largely kind of fun and conversational and not serious genetics research. I don't want people to think that we're going down that path. It really is just kind of a fun outline of the experiment. And I want to wrap with this story. You met some really interesting relatives of your own, including David, who was this... Older guy, World War II veteran, and kind of a joker. And I love his humor. Tell us his story that he had told you before he passed away about him getting shot down over Germany.
0: This really was one of the main themes, I think, of looking at your predecessors. It's just the sacrifices they made are just astounding. I often complain about stuff, but then when I look at what's come before me, I realize I am just a lucky bastard. So he was in World War II in the Air Force, and his bomber was shot down over Germany. He had to bail out. He was floating down in the parachute, and he saw all of these farmers and their wives running towards where he was going to land. He landed, and this German farmer had a shotgun and was about to shoot him, but his wife begged for mercy. The farmer's wife was like, Oh, he's too young. So they spared him. He was then taken to a Nazi headquarters and put on a train to a prisoner of war camp. What I find so moving is the scene on the train where he is sitting, and he said, this was the lowest point of my life, of course. I was on a train going to prisoner of war camp. I was a Jew surrounded by Nazis. I was sitting next to this guy who was a Nazi guard, and I looked over at the guy, and the guy offered him a cigarette. And David took the cigarette and smoked it, and he was like, that saved me. Just that one small gesture of humanity proved that even in the most inhumane circumstances, there is still humanity. And he was weeping when he was telling this story. It meant so much to him. And I told my kids, you know, this is not a license to smoke. Smoking is still bad for you. <laughs> but it shows you that it's sort of the theme of the book, that deep down we do share far more than what separates us even that the Nazis, they had some humanity, gives me a little hope. I love when he's in the prison barracks.
1: There's some other prisoner, says, weren't you in New Jersey Seahawken High School class in 1938, and and David says, nope, and then hours go by where they're just sitting in silence in the winter and in the cold, and then he pipes up and goes, but I was in the class of 1939. And he just lets this, <laughs> this joke
0: drag out for like hours. I, I love that in you In a like prison that. camp. I know. It shows that, again, same theme, even in the worst circumstances, he was able to play a practical joke in a prisoner of war camp. I don't know if I would have had the ability to do that. I'd be like, oh, yes, I was in Hawkin Pie. Oh, my God. Thank God I found you. But instead, he's like, nope.
1: Yep. I got to wait for the proper comedic timing. And also, he probably figured I might have like five years to execute the punchline of this joke. So we're in no rush.
0: That would have been brilliant if he waited the full like two years. Yeah, that would have been great. Well,
1: thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for your work as well. So funny and just interesting, entertaining and educational at the same time. What a great fit for AOC.
0: Well, right back at you, Jordan and Jason. I love your show. AJ Jacobs, the book is called It's All Relative
1: and it'll be linked up in the show notes as usual. Thank you, my cousins. Thank you. Thank you. Well, time flies when you're having fun, eh, Jason? That was a fun one. That was a good one.
2: It was really good. I'm kind of sad that uh, we're not related, though.
1: I know. I was a little bit surprised and also a little bummed. I was like, "Oh, okay, all of humanity is related. Let's see how distant of cousins we." Oh, nothing. Yeah, it was just so anticlimactic. However, I don't know. I think it just they're just thinking, okay, well, there's no point in saying you're seventieth cousins. Right, it just doesn't make enough of an impact. So they sort of left that hanging. It's just too much work for them to do it. I don't. I don't know the one thing that didn't make it into the show in the book that i thought was pretty funny is aj spent a lot of time trying to chase down celebrities and stuff like that to get this concept of the giant family reunion publicized. So he was kind of chasing down Mark Wahlberg and Melissa McCartney at some movie premiere. And he's like, it's your cousin. It's me, your cousin, AJ Jacobs. And Mark Wahlberg comes over like, I don't think so. Because if you look at Mark Wahlberg and you look at AJ Jacobs, you're not going to see a ton of similarity. You know, he just kind of thought, oh, great, another crazy person who thinks we're related. And he's waving around a copy of this DNA report. It's like, I'm not looking at this. I'm on the red carpet right now, you crazy ass. So you can just tell that any kind of experiment that A.J. Jacobs does is going to be similarly ridiculous. I love the fact that he goes through with all of these things. So great big thank you to A.J. Jacobs. The book title, once again, is It's All Relative. Of course, that'll be linked up in the show notes for this episode. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank A.J. on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the notes as well. Tweet at me your number one takeaway from A.J. Jacobs. I'm at the Charm on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram at Jordan Harbinger. Don't forget, we have a worksheet for today's episode so you can make sure you solidify your understanding of all the key takeaways from AJ Jacobs. That link is in the show notes at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. I also want to encourage you to join us in the AOC challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. The challenge is about improving your networking skills, your connection skills, those people skills, inspiring those around you to develop personal and professional relationships with you. It's free, the challenge. A lot of people seem to not know that it's free. That's the whole point. It's a fun way to get some forward momentum, get the ball rolling, and apply the things that you're learning here on the show to your life every single day, bit by bit. We'll also send you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, which includes some great practical stuff ready to apply right out of the box, On reading body language, having charismatic nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking and influence strategies, persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach here on the show and at our live programs at The Art of Charm. It will make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. That's all at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. Transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net. And I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. If you can think of anyone who might benefit from the episode you've just heard, please pay us the highest compliment and pay it forward by sharing this episode with that person. It only takes a moment and great ideas are meant to be shared. So share the show with friends, share the show with enemies, share the show with cousins because technically all your friends and enemies are also your cousins. Stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.